If you want to get your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. And just kind of working as a church at memorizing those books of the Bible. How have you been doing, right? Got the Bible broken up into two sections. The first half is the Old Testament, right? Or the Old Covenant, Jesus Christ concealed, right? And then the New Testament, Jesus Christ revealed. That's very simplified, um, but basically just to kind of help you. Uh, the first five books of the Old Testament called the Law or the Pentateuch. Uh, starting at creation and God's just first dealings with men and creating men and and then um, beginning to to deal with the sin issue in men and show men that they cannot keep the law on their best day, that they need help. They need a savior, right? Uh, that nation that he especially was uh, working with Israel, um, their story is, is written in the law and then also in the books of history, uh, the history of Israel as a nation and all of their kings, prophets would rise up and speak to those kings um, and tell them that the idols that they ran after, those dumb idols, were not worth worshiping. Uh, so turn back to the living and true God. Uh, and yet they wouldn't. And so those nations, Israel and Judah, would be led away captive to Assyria and into Babylon. Uh, and then Judah would be brought back out of Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem, basically, the temple, the wall. Uh, and, but then there would be some 400 years of silence, uh, uh, just leading up to the new Testament period when John the Baptist came on the scene, Jesus said, John the Baptist was the last of those old Testament prophets and, uh, Jesus coming as the hero, as the savior, um, as the champion, his story is written in the gospels, right? The four gospels, Matthew, Mark. Luke and John, written by four different guys for four different purposes and from four different perspectives, all right? And then after Jesus lived a perfect life and died the death for sinners, he rose from the dead, and that leads us into the book of Acts, which is where we're at right now, right? Acts is a book of history. It's a book of church history, the beginning of the church, and uh, it's been called the Acts of the Apostles. Maybe your Bible at the beginning of Acts says the Acts of the Apostles. I like to say the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, all right? So Acts, that's where we're at. In the book of Acts, missionaries start being sent out. They start a bunch of churches, um, beautiful churches that are growing. And you have the letters. See all the letters in the blue? All those letters are written by apostles to those new churches and how to live and how to be churches and how to behave as Christians and how to care for one another and all of those things. And, uh, and then some of those letters are written to pastors of those churches. They're called the pastoral epistles. And then we have a final book of prophecy, Revelation, that tells of our coming king and how he's going to come back and um, not necessarily when he's going to come back. There's a whole lot of confusion, but it's actually understandable uh, for the most part. Um, and so uh, that's the New Testament. Okay, so here's what we're going to do, all right? We're going to start, and just right now, all we're working on are the first five books of the New Testament, okay? There's this cute little song that I knew growing up. It uh, has the ditty of bum, 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 It's your guys' favorite rap beat that they've been doing lately, right? Um, and essentially, all we're doing right now is we're doing Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and then comes Acts and Romans. That's it, okay? That's all we're doing right now. So you can breathe. Boy, that. That was awkward and it's over and great. Okay, just gonna help you know your Bible, to be able to flip to things and share with people and know the word, okay? Um, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, throw a couple ands in there, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and then comes Acts and Romans. All right, that's all we're doing, okay? Now, it's been a long time since I've done this, but I'm gonna kind of do the whole song here and see if we can do this. Okay, so just, it's gonna be more embarrassing than it is for you, so just chill, okay? All right, I can't even read that, because, okay. All right, so... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and then comes Acts and Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy. This is my favorite part. Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. All right. <laughs> James, First and Second Peter, First and Second and Third John, Jude, and then the very last book, 
is the revelation. Right, Shelly? You know this one, right? Okay. All right. Got really nervous there for a second. (laughs) Never done that in public before. There's a reason. There's a reason I don't do that in public, but... Okay, so you just kind of get the flow and just, you know, have it before you. It'll, it's, it's helpful. And um, there's something just so nice about being able to know the word and where to find things, you guys. And it'll just help in your growth um, as a Christian. So moving right along in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4 is where we're at now. Will you go to Acts chapter 1 with me? And we're just going to do like just a browse, just flying over from 50,000 feet. Not even 30,000, we're going 50,000 feet. But just to help some of you that are newer to Calvary Chapel or newer to the Acts series, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is still on the earth. He'd just risen from the dead, and he's hanging out on the earth. He's showing that he's alive for 40 days, and he proved it with all sorts of great signs and wonders. He showed up to some 500 people even at one time to prove that he rose from the dead and that he was legit and real, okay? And as he's um, on those final, that final day here on earth, uh, he gathers his disciples around on the Mount of Olives and he says, okay, you guys, um, you need to go down into Jerusalem just off this little hill. You'll go right into town and you need to hang out there and wait for the promise of the Father, all right? The promise of the Father who is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will come. And so they did that. They went off the hill. They went into Jerusalem, 120 of them hung out in a room for about 10 days. They waited on the Lord and they prayed together. And that gets us to Acts chapter two. Can you believe we're in Acts chapter two already? Right? Acts chapter two, they're waiting. They're in one accord. They're doing what Jesus said. And all of a sudden out of uh, heaven comes the sound of a mighty rushing wind Cloven tongues of fire appear upon each person's head, and they begin to speak in other tongues uh, as the Lord gave them utterance. Um, There were some 19 languages that were represented in that room that were being spoken, and people who were in town were walking by the room and, uh, and began to hear the commotion and hear these other languages, and they're like, hey, I'm from Egypt, or I'm from Libya, or I'm from Parthia. How do you know my language? You're just, you're just a redneck from Galilee. And Peter used that as a chance to stand up and to tell everyone who'd gathered around to tell them about Jesus. So he preaches the gospel in Acts chapter two. And in Acts chapter two, we have really like the birth of the church. We have a couple thousand people get saved and the church begins to get together and gather in Jerusalem, just like we are today. And they regularly started getting together or our vocab word for the week that week was assiduously, assiduously, which means they continually kept getting together. What's with these people, right? They would get together and they would study the Bible. They would study uh, doctrine. They would get together and they would pray. They would get together and break bread, something that we do here, both at the communion table and in La Cocina, right? In the kitchen, okay? We have a joke that we don't meet unless we eat here at Calvary Chapel, right? We love to feast together. We got some good cooks around here too, all right? So they ate and they had uh, what's called fellowship, Okay, which is worth, they, they shared everything with one another. They shared their hearts. They shared their lives. They shared their struggles. They shared their victories. Um, and they lived life with one another. They had what we call body life, all right? And so uh, what else did they do? Prayer, bringing bread. And they continued in those things steadfastly, right? Um, Acts chapter three, boom, okay? Okay, in Acts chapter three, yep, we're still in three. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. They still were going to the temple. They were praying. And as they did, they saw a lame man who'd been crippled from his mother's womb, who daily was brought to the beautiful gate of the temple, and he would beg and ask for alms, okay? Peter says, hey, look up at me. And the guy looked up at him, expecting to receive something. And Peter said, what's another great children's song that I could sing to you right now, but I'm not gonna, because I've got a little class, okay? Um, Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for alms and held out his palms. And this is what Peter did say. He said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Okay. And then nothing happened. It was a total bummer. And so they went home. Just kidding. The guy's ankle bones immediately received strength. He hops up on him, 
Just like Ian did. I don't know if you noticed we prayed for Ian here. Okay, that didn't happen at the moment. We're trusting the Lord. We're trusting the Lord, okay? All right. This man's ankle bones receive strength. He jumps up and he goes home. It's great. No, what did he do? He went walking and leaping and praising God. And he joined Peter and John in the temple. And tons of people came around because they knew that this guy had been lame for 40 years and they wanted to know what was up. So Peter, again, sees an opportunity. He starts sharing the gospel and he preaches that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, that brings us to chapter four, which is where we're at. The Jewish leaders called the Sadducees heard that Peter and John were preaching in Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead. And so they came and they arrested Peter and John. Do you guys remember why the Sadducees were so bent out of shape about it? Because they were sad, you see. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't want that being taught. So they arrested Peter and John. They threw him in prison for a night, thinking that would, that'll shape them up. Meanwhile, some 5,000 people come to Jesus through the testimony of what had just happened. Okay, so do you see how the church is growing? Why do they call this a book of church history? Because it's growing. It went from 120 in chapter 1 to about... Uh, what would it be, 3,120 by the end of chapter two to by the beginning of chapter four, we're at 8,120 Christians. And that's just men, it's believed. Um, so, you know, probably some 20,000 Christians right now, women and children as well, in the early church. That's how we started. Did you know that? This is how we started. It's pretty exciting stuff. This is why we do what we do. Honestly, this is why we do what we do. Okay. Um, and, and so they asked Peter as he's arrested and they bring him out, Peter and John, they say, hey, by what name and by what authority are you doing this stuff? Preaching in Jesus and healing people and so on and so forth. And Peter begins to say, hey, you guys, you got to understand, like, you're not bent out of shape about us healing this guy. You're bent out of shape because we're talking about Jesus. And he says, the stone, it's in verse 11, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus was what the Psalm 118 and Isaiah speak of in that you got rid of him. He didn't fit your mold. He was a crude cutout of what you wanted the cornerstone to look like. And then you realize, hey, we need a good foundation stone. Um, Jesus fits that and God has made him the chief cornerstone, but you killed him. And so Peter uses that story from Psalm 18 in the book of Isaiah. Jesus even mentioned it, this cornerstone story to say, hey, Jesus is the cornerstone that you didn't like the way he was. He didn't fit into your mold. But you know what? You got to know Acts 4.12, and that's where we start at today. In Acts 4.12, it says, nor is there uh, salvation found in any other. Are you guys there with me? This is our memory verse from last week. Nor is there salvation found in any other. Um, I'm not a good multitasker. Uh, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you wanted a different cornerstone. You wanted something that looked right and was all tidy and neat and just the way you thought it should be that fits your mold and your image. And you got to realize Jesus is high above what you could even ever hope or dream about. All right. And you're hoping for some salvation and a different guy or a different name or some different Messiah. You got to understand right now that this is an exclusive message. It's a narrow way. And it is that Jesus is the way. And remember last week we talked about that it might not be a popular message for our day, but it is the message that needs to be spoken in a world of relevant truth where everyone is tossed and turned by a wave of any imagination they can think of. Jesus Christ stands firm in the Bible as the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other name. And you can try to think of a lot of them, all right? There's a whole bunch of religions out there. There's a smorgasbord, all right? There's an Izzy's buffet of religions to pick from of whatever fits your fancy. But guess what? It's not about your fancy. It's about what you need. And y'all need to be saved from your sin, okay? And me too. We need to realize that we are poor and miserable and naked without Jesus, and we need him to come and heal us and save our souls uh, from hell. And so that's verse 12 uh, that, that Peter just boldly proclaims uh, that it's Christ or nothing, as our Kent Hughes says. It's Christ or judgment. It's Christ or hell. And you can, you know, you have so many people buying into Hollywood or buying into some trip that they had to Asia and buying into the message of, of karma, for instance. And they don't realize that karma will just lead you into a path towards hell. Uh, a couple years ago, Johnny, who was just leading worship, good friend of mine, um, he bought a hot tub from Bend. 
And uh, he asked, you know, some 12 guys to go and to load this, you know, everyone, anyone here bought a hot tub before? And all of a sudden you've got like, people are your friends. You're like, hey, brother, you know? Uh, so we all load up in this car. We head to Bend. And uh, the guy that had sold the hot tub is just tragic story, sad story in that, you know, his wife had just left him and, and just his business had been hurting. Just everything was just going wrong in his life. And he, he said, man, I just... I've been trying to do good karma. I've been trying to do good karma and just nothing is working out for me. And having been to uh, Nepal, really the birthplace of karma and in India, the birthplace of Hinduism and Buddhism altogether, um, I know what this whole karma, shmarma is all about, you guys. Um, there's no hope in it. There's no hope. There's just guilt trip after guilt trip and you striving and striving and striving and hoping, just hoping that, just the demon that controls everything will put you in a better place than the place before. And you might be, you might made a, be made a demigod, you know, one time through the circle. And, uh, and you know what? It doesn't even matter if you're a demigod or a god because life still has suffering. And the only hope that you could have is that one day you've done enough that you, your existence will be snuffed out like a candle. That's the, that's the best hope that you have. But that would be through lifetimes after lifetimes after lifetimes of trying to be good enough that either you're put into the, the icy hell or the fiery hell or you're put as some animal in this world or you're reincarnated into some sort of a king. None of it is good enough. Even the life of a God isn't good enough. You better hope to be snuffed out someday because life is nothing but suffering. And you can talk to Buddhists in Nepal as you go there and they'll just say, I just have no, I have no hope. I have nothing to expect. This life is hopeless and miserable. And I said to this guy at the hot tub, and I just said, hey, do you know what the difference is between karma and grace? And he just, he stood there, and you could tell the wheels started turning, and he goes, why don't you tell me what the difference is between karma and grace? I said, karma is based upon your performance and upon your merit, and there's no hope. There's no, you'll never know. And, uh, and I said, grace is based upon God's performance and Jesus's performance, and Jesus's merit. And I'll tell you what, he fits the bill. He's perfect and sinless, and he gives all of his perfection and sinlessness to you if you'll believe in him. And you can have the hope of everlasting life, and it's not an everlasting life of suffering. It's an everlasting life of paradise and peace and no more pain and no more suffering and no more anguish and no more tears. And it's all because of what he's done. It doesn't depend one iota upon what you've done. And it just opened up an incredible opportunity to speak. He's like drawn his friends into the conversation. He's like, you got to hear this stuff. Grace. Grace changes everything. Bono sings about it. Grace is more than a word. It's a thought that's changed the world. It's a thought that's changed the world. It's an action that's changed the world. Grace. All right? And so there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. It's not Buddha. It's not the two million Hindu gods and Vishnu and all of them, like there's no hope in those guys. It's not the, the principles of labor through um, Islam. Uh, it, it's not based on us, you guys. It's based on Jesus's grace. That's where this hope is. And so here's Peter, who is a, a fisherman from Galilee and his buddy John, who's also a fisherman from Galilee. And, uh, and they're standing up in front of the Supreme Court of Israel in a sense. Nowadays, it'd be maybe parliament or the Knesset is what Jerusalem has. Um, maybe it, we could imagine Congress or something and you standing and giving a defense for why you've been doing what you're doing. And Peter and John stand and they begin speaking with knowledge um, and, and boldness and courage and bluntness, honestly. And so in verse 13, and this is where we pick up on where fresh ground for us today. That was all an introduction. Hope you enjoyed your introduction. I know you were like, I think he's almost done. No, he's just starting. Oh my goodness, this is the worst. Okay, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they'd been with Jesus. And so this is the Sanhedrin. This is kind of the Supreme Court of the government and religious system. And they're hearing Peter and John speak. And, and it doesn't say, ah, oh, when they heard of the qualifications and the education system that they've been through and all of the diplomas and degrees on the wall of Peter and John. Ah, then they were deserving of being listened to. You know, it, it's none of that. It's when they saw the boldness 
of Peter and John that they begin to process there's something about these guys, okay? Uh, the word boldness or maybe courage, if you've got the NIV of Peter and John. I've always loved that. I like bold things, you know? When I go to the store and I buy myself some barbecue sauce, what do I buy? Big, bold, bold, bold rama, you know, whatever. You know. I love me some bold flavor, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I love when you're writing a paper. In high school, I used to do this. I'd type my whole paper out in regular font, and then I'd pick a little word in the middle, and I'd bolden it. You know, and then I'd be like, guess which one of these words is bold? And your eye, what does it do? Your eye just focuses right on that. It sticks out, doesn't it? And that's what the Lord's called us to as Christians. You know, does anybody go into the store and they're buying, what's the opposite of bold? Like, uh, maybe you like a good timid barbecue sauce. You know, maybe you like a little something that you can barely taste on your chicken when you're grilling. No way! Like, give me some flavor, man. Like, stand out, all right? And, and the Lord's like, I want to give you some flavor in your life. I want you to stand out. I want you to speak about me. I want you to have some courage. Peter and John both had it speaking with frankness and bluntness. And, and it caused a little bit of a wow factor here in the Sanhedrin. They perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled. And then they realized these guys have been with Jesus. Guys, this is, I mean, this is a memory verse. We've got, actually, we got verse 11's a memory verse about the cornerstone. We've got verse 12's a memory verse about the singularity and exclusivity of the gospel that all men can be saved, but all men have got to be saved through Jesus, okay? It's through Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, uh, through faith alone. Uh, and now we've got another incredible memory verse that the Lord uses everyday average, I was going to say Joe, but there's a Joe in the room, an, an average row just like me. The Lord uses us. You may be an untrained man or woman. You might be uneducated as a man or woman. John Stott says it that they were amazed, particularly because they were unschooled. And the word unschooled in the Greek is uh, agrammatoi. Now, whenever you have the word a in front of a Greek word, it means no, right? So you've got atheist, atheist, which means what? No God, right? Or you've got agnostic, which means no knowledge or I don't know. And then you've got guys like me that are a grammatoid, which means grammar school was not my favorite thing in the world, right? Um, no grammar, right? Uh, and it, and it, what it meant was um, they didn't have a proper training in rabbinic theology. Chris and I were just speaking the other day at the gym about how a lot of times we think of Peter and John as just dummies and untrained in the sense that they didn't even know how to read good, you know? Um, but... The custom was that since they returned from captivity, they, Israel wanted their people to know the Talmud and to know the law. So when you read Peter, you see he had memory verses, right? You see he knew the word. So he knew the word, but he wasn't trained as a rabbi like these guys were expecting, all right? They didn't have training in this rabbic, uh, rabbinic theology, but they were ordinary men. Raise your hand in the room if you're an ordinary man. Anybody here in the room, you're like, woo, that's me, right? Uh, ordinary, ordinary women in this room? Any ordinary women? Oh, yeah. Don't be modest. There's nothing ordinary about you, Amanda. Okay, all right. So just, I was like, got to be nice to somebody in the room today. Um, all right, so ordinary guys, and this is what's great. In the Greek, this ordinary, it's idiotai. Okay, what do, you, what do you think? What English word do we get out of that? Like, these guys are total idiots, no grammar school, right? No proper diploma hanging on their wall. They're laymen and they're non-professionals. And you guys, if you've gotten to know me very much, this is Rory Rogers, okay? Idiotai, right? I'm not even offended by that. Like, try as hard as I want, you know? Just, as I've got a, just an incredible um, Lakeview Honkers diploma from... 2000 class of 2000 y2k we made it through y2k wasn't that awesome um class of 2000 and uh yeah so i've got that under my belt pretty impressive right late you honkers and then i've got a thank you i've got a term of welding right didn't even finish welding school that was a that was a good season of life for me um i mean did you know there's like sparks and fires and stuff and that's how they do that like people burn themselves okay so ran away from that um and then uh Oh, but I did go to Bible, did I say Bible college? Um, I did a school of ministry, homegrown, 
you know, born out of like the basement of a pastor in Corvallis, essentially, and just some friends getting together and studying the word. And uh, I got a diploma. No, I didn't finish that either. Um, gosh, man, this is horrible. Uh, my dad had a stroke in the middle of the year and I had to go take care of my dad and live in a motorhome out by St. Charles Hospital and help my dad with his paralysis and things like that. So, so you guys, you're looking, at, you're looking at it around here. What's it take to be in ministry at Calvary Chapel? I mean, I think you've got it. I mean, are you breathing? Do you have a pulse? Right? Do you love Jesus? Have you been with Jesus? That's who the Lord uses right there, you guys. And so for me, like the book smarts and stuff, I remember in school of ministry, John Wang telling me, telling the class, like, if you want to be in ministry, if you want to be a pastor, you better lo- learn to love to read. I was like, <laughs> you know, no, it's okay. Wait, say that again. Learn to love to, to read. Okay. And um, I'm like, does boxcar children count? You know, does, um, you know, Beverly Cleary, you know, or whatever, you know, uh, so just the Lord just developed in me a hunger to start reading, okay, and to start growing and to start learning. And so, so for me, you guys, I was 14 years old. Even though I was raised in the church, I was 14 years old when the Lord got a hold of my heart, okay? I was raised in a Baptist church where if there was anything else that we could do on a Sunday besides go to church, please, God, open up that way, right? Um, you know, I mean, the smell of burnt coffee and old lady perfume, you know, to me, it was like, hey, you know, that was church for me. Okay. Um, until the Lord got a hold of my heart, I used to hide my tennis shoes, or I'm sorry, I used to hide my cowboy boots as a kid so that maybe I wouldn't get to go to church because I didn't have proper foot attire. Tyler, you know how it is, right? You know, came in your cowboy boots today. Um, so my mom would just say, well, then you're, you'll wear your tennis shoes, right? Or I used to load my bike up in the back of our car on my birthday thinking, I've been a good kid. It's my birthday. I'll go to Sunday school first service and then ride home and play second service. And my mom was like, what's the bike for? Oh, I thought I'd skip second service. Oh, no. You're staying with the re- If we have to be here, then you have to be here, right? Um, so, and then 14 years old, like this wasn't anything that I did. This shows the grace of God. He just like, captured my heart, just changed my heart, just made me love him. I want to love him. I want to know his word. I want to read his word. You see an aspect of God's sovereignty and salvation and that he just touched this kid's heart and made me want him. I pray that for you today. If you're like that, where you're like, if there's anything else, God, not church, please, not reading the Bible, not long times of prayer. It's like, just let the Lord just touch your heart and change your heart. He'll do it. Did it to me. He's done it to many of us, all right? And so then from that point on, I just was like, I want to be at everything that's happening at the church, 14 years old. And so I would be at service. I'd get there early for service. I'd serve. I'd clean. I'd go to youth group. I'd show up early for youth group where people were praying for the youth. And so I showed up to pray for the youth. Started learning how to pray. I think I mentioned recently, my youth pastor, Mark, told me, Rory, I notice you're getting bold in prayer. Did you say bold? <laughs> I happen to like that word, you know? I begin to grow in boldness in praying out as a 14 going on 15-year-old. I was at everything that the church did. Uh, I remember men coming and picking me up early in the morning on Thursdays for men's breakfast at Burton's Restaurant in Corvallis. And I remember just sitting with all these men around this table and they're eating their breakfast, you know, and they're worshiping with deep manly voices. And I'm like, this is incredible, you know? And, and, uh, just these guys love Jesus. And, uh, and then in high school, I learned that I could get a release time credit to go do whatever job I wanted to do in the future. And so I got a release time credit to go hang out at the church. And my pastor discipled me and he gave me books to read and he gave me a Windex bottle and I used to go and clean the windows and the little uh, legs of the chair used to get fingerprints on them and I'd wipe all the chairs down and I'd write book reports and that's it, right? Just spend time with Jesus since a kid. And I'm just, I'm just here as a living, breathing testimony to you that you don't have to be anything special intellectually see, or academically. Just love Jesus. And he will use you. 
one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, he, you know, he's not a Calvary Chapel guy, right? He's a community church guy. And he says, you got to hand it to those Calvary Chapel guys, you know? He says, all it takes is a pair of jeans and a Bible and they'll make you a pastor, you know? And it's like, amen? Praise the Lord for his grace, you know? And that is not a knock on learning. It just makes us want to learn more. It's his grace that makes us want to dive in. And, uh, and so in this case, uh, hey, they, per- they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. What does it mean to perceive something? Like, uh, picking up the, you know, you haven't been trained in the, you know, in the universities, you know. Um, and they marveled, and then they realized something. These guys have been with Jesus. So I just want to invite you, start living down here at the church. Right, Daniel Fusco from, uh, from Vancouver has this great saying. He says, come early, stay late, and say yes to everything. That's how to get into the ministry. Just be at the church, be with people, and strive to love Jesus and know Jesus more. Um, New Living Translation says, these were just ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. Or look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us in verses 26 through 29. For you know your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And so this isn't to discourage the wise or the noble type men or women. It just says that there's not many that are called. Like the Lord can't trust these people. They are too dependent on their pedigree and their diplomas. Okay? It says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put the shame the wise Guys, you're looking at the foolish thing of the world, right? Just the other day, you know, Friday, we were at a branding out at Joe's place and, you know, did all right roping. It was like, all right, I praise the Lord, did all right roping. And then get down on the ground crew and first big old calf comes through and I'm just like, yeah, you got to get her over on the right side to get branded. This is how you do it. You know, grab the tail and roll it over. I roll the calf onto my foot. It's a big calf. It rolls onto my foot and I fall over back like I just trip in front of everybody fall over backwards, have to be lifted up off the ground. I got dirt all over me. And I'm like, I'll be here all week, people. Like, you know, just, I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm an idiotai, you know? And uh, you know what? Hey, and the Lord's like, perfect. <laughs> all right, I use the idiotais. He says, he chooses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And the Lord does that. There's professors and there's educated people and they're anti-God and they're agnostic and they're atheists. And the Lord says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then he brings us into the picture and we just get to speak about Jesus from a life transformed and a love relationship with him. And they got nothing on that. And they will realize this person's got something. They've been with Jesus. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those who are mighty. And the base things of the world, I think the word base means something like kind of that off-scouring and almost the dung aspect of the world. Those base things uh, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So anybody here today, you're ordinary and you feel like you're not it. You're not all that in a bag of potato chips. You're like, I'm not. And I'm the base thing. And I don't know the books of the Bible and your little song's kind of dumb and I'm never going to remember that tune when I'm singing it later this week. And I just got, I got nothing. Perfect. Just start loving Jesus and he will start using you. Now, why would God do that? Well, the very last phrase here is super important. It's so that no flesh should glory in his presence. See, if it's all about our pedigree and our education, we start, yeah, pretty, the Lord will humble you. He'll make you trip in front of your friends like he did to me, all right? Yeah, I got it all figured out, you know? And the Lord's like, hey, I love it when people are humble. I love it when people got nothing and they just start praying like crazy because they know when they get in a situation to start sharing Jesus with friends, I don't even know what I'm saying. I don't even remember the verse. I don't even know. Jesus, help me. And then, and he helps. And then later on when you're telling people about it, you're like, and then the Lord just came through and started speaking and it was awesome. And it gives God all the glory. That's why God uses the Davids against the Goliath, right? That's why God uses the Gideons against the Midianites, 
That's why God uses the 300 men of Gideon that don't even know how to drink water right with their swords against an army as many as the sand of the seashore. Because God gets all the glory. That's what he's all about. Um, I had in my notes, uh, and I remember I looked it up once and I have a reference from it, but there's a Calvary Chapel saving grace in California and their pastor, uh, at least at the time in my notes, name was, was Trent Douglas. And my notes said, Trent was so dyslexic, he couldn't read. So Bible college students would have to read the text up on the stage and then he would preach and give the sense from uh, the gospel. And so uh, it's like, praise the Lord for stories like that. It just shows us you are useful for Jesus if you'll humble yourself and come to love Jesus. All right, so one last little thing on this. Alexander McLaren wrote that a soul habitually in contact with Jesus will imbibe sweetness from him. Just as garments laid away in a drawer with some perfume absorb fragrance from that beside which they lie. You know, there's no substitute to spending time with Jesus. Like one of the guys in our home group um, just before the fast said, there's no life hack to spending time with Jesus. Like, hey, hey, you don't want to spend time with the Lord? Do this instead, it'll work great. No, like it's spending time with Jesus. That's really what heaven is, all right? And you can tell when people have spent time with Jesus or when they've been neglecting that time. And so get in the drawer with the bounce, downy, fresh, fabric softener. You know, we just bought those. Sometimes we don't buy the neat stuff for our laundry. And sometimes I'm like, Lindsay, you're the best. You bought the bounce, the bounce downy softener. You toss it in there. That's ah, what we smell like when we've been with Jesus. Ah. Acts 4.14, let's move on. None of that was in my notes, just so you're wondering. Dounce bounty softener. <laughs> I think he's confusing like paper towel and all sorts of things. Okay, getting back to the story. And seeing the man who'd been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they commanded them to go inside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So uh, they're, you know, they're there in the Supreme Court type setting, and they're just like, man, this guy that's been healed after 40 years of paralysis, like everyone knows that just a bona fide miracle has happened. We can't argue with it. So uh, we don't know what to do. Why don't you guys go out of the room, and we're going to have a conference, you know? And what do they decide in the conference? They say in verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people. We don't want people talking about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So come back in. They solemnly forbid them to speak the name of Jesus. You might underline and circle every time in chapters three and four, the name of Jesus. It says name of Jesus. It speaks of the authority and the power in Jesus and in his name. It's the name above all names, Philippians chapter two tells us. And so they are solemnly forbidden to speak about Jesus. And don't you guys love it when someone uses that word? I forbid you from seeing him anymore, you know? Or husbands to your wives, it always goes over so well. I forbid you from buying Dow's bounty softeners. You know, you know, uh, you know, nobody likes to be forbidden things, you know. Oh, you forbid me, do you? Well, now, okay. So there's a big forbiddening happening, okay. And what do Peter and John say to the forbiddening? But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God you judge. So what do you think, guys? Honestly, you know, we kind of go through this even in these days and ages, right? What do you think? A governing authority that we are called to submit to in the Bible tells us to do something that's against God. Who do we obey? You know, and and Peter kind of throws it out as like a rhetorical question, all right? Uh, And and he goes on to say, um, you know, we cannot but speak the things which we see and hear, all right? It's, it's kind of rhetorical. Like, you don't need to answer it. We're going to obey God 
every time. If there's ever a conflict between a man or God, let's just go with God on that one, okay? But that applies to every relationship in life. There are many relationships that we're called to be humble and submit to one another in. Uh, in a church relationship, elders are to be submitted to and pastors are be to submitted, submitted to. Uh, in a governing society, the kings or the presidents or the police uh, or teachers, these are all things that we are to be submitting to. Uh, in the home, husbands are to be submitted to. Uh, children are to submit to their parents. Employees are to submit to their employers. And yet, whenever there's a conflict that goes against our conscience before the Lord, we have to obey God rather than men. Uh, the Greek philosopher Socrates uh, spoke boldly before the court that condemned him centuries before Peter. And he spoke this, I shall obey God rather than you. And, you know, Peter probably hadn't been versed or well-versed in Socrates. Maybe, but probably not. J. Howard Marshall wrote that this statement from Peter can be seen as an affirmation of the freedom of the individual's conscience over and against the state. And so in a sense, it is. The individual claims the freedom to obey what he believes to be the command of God. But the important point is that it is the higher obedience due to God which is at issue. And this obedience stands above the command of any religious or political system. It was the same system in the Jews in that day. And so here limits what is implied in Romans 13, 1 through 7. We all love Romans 13. Obey the governing authorities that have been set before you, right? Uh, God has given these authorities and they are ministers of God to provide justice and judgment and they don't bear the sword in vain. But whenever the system of government or the husband or the parents or the church, two things. Number one, command you to do something that God forbids or forbid you to do something that God commands, you choose God every time, okay? Husband forbids his wife to go uh, to church or to cheat on their taxes or things like that. Um, you gotta obey the Lord on that. Um, and so there could be no doubt that God must be obeyed rather than men whenever it comes in a clash between the two. Uh, we've even had to just wrestle through that in the last couple of years here at the church. And there was a time where Lindsay and I were talking and didn't feel that it was at a point where, you know, you know what, like it's time to send the father of our home and the husband of the home and the pastor of the church. Like he's ready to go to prison for maybe decisions that we've got to make. And there was a point where it was like, no, nope, it's not time. I'm not ready to send you to prison yet. We're not there yet. And then there came a point where it was clear there was, there was an, a war against biblical Christianity that for me, it, like, I'm going to go to jail for this if I have to, okay? Um, and so everyone's got to make that decision before the word, get in the word, and know what you're making these big stands for, okay? Um, and so then this classic verse from verse 20, we can't help but speak the things that we've seen and heard. We've seen Jesus. We've walked with Jesus. We've camped with Jesus. We've seen him living dead, risen from the dead, ascending into heaven. And I can't shut my mouth about Jesus. I can't but speak is that you? Is that mention your guys' life? I think it is some of you. That's awesome. And if it's not, today we're going to pray at the end that you would have that kind of a heart uh, going out of this place. I can't be quiet anymore. I've got to tell people about Jesus and how awesome he is. So verse 21, when they'd further threaten them and let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Uh, and so they just let them go like, man, if we persecute them anymore, it's going to cause a big riot. And so being let go, verse 23, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So Peter and John are released from prison. Uh, there may have been some sort of a homecoming party for them, you know, as they, they got out. People have been wondering what happened to Peter and John. They went to the temple to pray. They never came home that day. Uh, what's going on? And so being let go, Peter and John come and they tell of all that had happened. And, and you know, what did, what did they do and what was their response as people? Essentially, they started picketing, right? They started a riot. They demanded justice. No, none of those things, okay? What did they do? 
They corporately went to prayer. Right? Sometimes that's not our option. They're like, I'll get on the horn with the governor. You know? No, they went to prayer. They were bold in preaching, and now they're bold in prayer. Immediately, they turned together uh, to God in prayer. And in closing, we're just going to notice a couple things about their prayer. Number one, they pray out to Lord God in their prayer. Or maybe your translation says, Sovereign Lord. It was a term of exclusive power, a, a term used of a slave owner of the day and uh, someone who is ruling with unchallengeable authority. So they're praying to the supreme commander, to the Lord God. No one challenges his authority, even though they were just told not to preach anymore. You know what? We're praying to our real boss in heaven and we're going to cry out to him. And then their prayer is just beautiful. It's doctrinal. It's scriptural. It's doctrinal again. First of all, it's doctrinal because they pray to the one who's the creator. And whenever you go to prayer, and maybe you got some big stuff and some heavy stuff you're praying for, start praying about the fantastic things that God's done. Mention those things. Like, God, you created the entire universe with your breath. It wasn't there, and then it was there. All right? You know what that does? That causes your problems to seem a lot smaller. Just as astronauts, you know, when they blast off into space and they get way up above the atmosphere. If you've ever seen the movie Rocket Man, you know, he's a little boy, wants to be an astronaut and he's in his dryer and he has a picture of the earth and he goes, the earth looks like a giant blueberry, you know? And, uh, you know, when the astronauts are up there and they're like, the earth looks like a giant blueberry, but you know what that does? It makes all of the world's problems seem so small. There's conflict, there's wars, there's this, there's that. And then God of the universe is like, you know what? I'm bigger than it all. And so pray, pray to the God who parted the Red Sea. Pray to the God who beat the Midianites back, that conquered Goliath by just a little shepherd boy. Pray to that God and it'll put your problems in perspective. He goes on in verse 25, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The king of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So secondly, their prayers were scriptural. Peter and John and, and the early church, they knew the Old Testament. They knew that Psalm chapter two had just been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That the rulers, the Sanhedrin, Herod, the people took their stand against the Lord and the Messiah. And the Lord would hold them in derision for that, Acts chapter 2 goes on to say. So they lifted up their voice and they prayed from the Bible. They prayed knowledgeably, they prayed biblically, and they prayed bigly. So the more you read your Bible, the more you're going to know how to pray. Uh, I've got just a neat passage here from R.A. Torrey's book, how to pray. I've got it on the, on the screen for you where he says the whole secret of prayer. By the way, this is written in the 1800s. R.A. Torrey was an awesome evangelist, wrote this great book called How to Pray. It's a booklet. You can get it online for free. We've read it together at the Pulse Prayer Meeting to grow in prayer. And this is what he says. It's, it's from John 15, 7 that says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And so Torrey says, the whole secret of prayer is found in these words of our Lord. Here is prayer that has unbounded power. Ask what ye will, and it will be done unto you. If we are to obtain from God all that we ask from him, Christ's words must abide and continue in us. We must study his words, fairly devour his words, let them sink into our thought and into our heart, keep them in our memory, obey them constantly in our life, and let them shape and mold our daily life and our every act. So does that sound like someone that's doing that has spent time with Jesus? Like, you know, untrained men, but they've spent time with Jesus. They've been in his word and they're meditating on his word. This is really the method of abiding in Christ, Tori says. It is through his words that Jesus imparts himself to us. The words he speaks unto us, they are spirit and they are life. It's vain to expect power in prayer unless we meditate upon the words of Christ and let them sink deep and find a permanent abode in our hearts. I have this part underlined. There are many who wonder why they are so powerless in prayer, but the very simple explanation of it all is found in their neglect of the words of Christ. 
They've not hidden his words in their heart. His words do not abide in them. It's not by seasons of mystical meditation and rapturous experiences that we learn to abide in Christ. It's by feeding upon his word. His written word is found in the Bible and looking to the Holy Spirit to implant these words in our heart and to make them a living thing in our hearts. And then I have this underlined. If we thus let the words of Christ abide in us, they will stir us up in prayer. They will be the mold in which our prayers are shaped and our prayers will be necessarily along the line of God's will and we will prevail with him. Prevailing prayer is almost an impossibility where there's a neglect of the study of the word of God. Mere intellectual study of the word of God is not enough. There must be meditation upon it. The word of God must be revolved over and over and over in the mind and be constantly looking to God by his spirit to make that word a living thing in the heart. The prayer that is born of meditation upon the word of God is the prayer that soars upward most easily to God's listening ear. Then he quotes George Mueller from George Mueller, who was a, a great minister, owned the orphanage, was always low on finances and didn't know how they were going to pay for the next meal for the kids or how they, you know, and he would just pray to the Lord and then the milk would show up, the, you know, the, the milk truck cart would break down outside of the orphanage and they'd have to give all this milk away. And that's just the story of George Mueller's life. And it says in Tori's book, George Mueller, one of the mightiest men of prayer in the present generation, when the hour of prayer came, he would begin by reading and meditating upon God's word until out of the study of the word, a prayer began to form itself in his heart. Thus, God himself was the real author of the prayer, and God answered the prayers which he himself had inspired. Last paragraph. The word of God is the instrument through which the Holy Spirit works. It is the sword of the Spirit in more sense than one, and the one who would know the work of the Holy Spirit in any direction must feed upon the word. The one who would pray in the Spirit must meditate upon the word, and the Holy Spirit may have something through which he can work. The Holy Spirit works his prayers in us through the word and neglect of the word makes praying in the Holy Spirit an impossibility. If we had feed the fire of our prayers with the fuel of God's word, all of our difficulties in prayer would disappear. You guys, I'm so stirred reading that because just since we've studied the book of Acts, God is reviving our heart for prayer as a church. Last night at the Pulse in the prayer chapel, um, couldn't fit everybody in the prayer chapel. The prayer meeting came out of the chapel and into the couch area. We don't know what to call that, you know, uh, the commons area, the narthex, whatever, you know, and out in that people were out there as we worshiped and we prayed to the Lord. It was just beautiful prayer and prayer after prayer after prayer. And I just want to encourage you guys to come be a part of that. If we get to move the prayer meeting into the sanctuary, we'd love to do that. It can't be too big. You guys pray and come with the word on your heart. We're going to be wrapping up here. Verse 27 For truly against your holy servant Jesus, and this is all, remember, they're just praying to the Lord. They just prayed the word out from Psalm 2, and now they're praying after being persecuted. They know that it was against the holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So they know that Psalm chapter 2 was talking about Jesus and all those rulers who wanted to kill Jesus. But at the end of the day, it wasn't the people, it wasn't the rulers that were in control. God had predetermined in his sovereign plan that Jesus would be killed in such a manner. His sovereignty is at hand. And look at verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and slay our enemies with a great and vehement fire. No, that's not what he says. What do they say? Now, look on their threats And grant to your servants that with all, there's that word, boldness, they may speak your word. So now after they've clarified their vision of who God is, he's the creator. He's the God who wrote scripture down, inspiration through David. He's the God who uh, knew beforehand and planned beforehand how Jesus would die. They've got an idea of who God is and now they're asking him for something. And they now ask him for boldness. Not for deliverance from the problem, uh, not for elimination of the weight that they bear on their back in persecution, but for stronger backs that can now bear that weight. As Phillips Brooks said, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Or as Alexander pointed out, their demand in prayer here is not for miracles of vengeance or destruction or fire from heaven upon their enemies, but for miracles of mercy to now happen. It's a timely prayer here that they pray for boldness. They pray for Christ-centered, spirit-empowered 
boldness. And that's what we're going to close out today praying for. If uh, Andy, do you mind running into the conference room and grabbing Johnny? He's teaching the kids, but he's also our worship leader. So, you know, a little bit of that action going on. Christ-centered, spirit-empowered boldness. That's how we're going to close today. We're going to pray, God, grant to your servants boldness. Have you ever prayed that prayer over your life? Is that a common cry to the Lord that you would be bold to speak the word of God? Alistair Begg said, so you see, if we're going to speak to men and women with boldness concerning the word and concerning the mystery of the gospel, we're going to have to be brave enough to press through the pain barrier, which come from those who say, well, wait a minute. You know what he's talking about there? If you've ever tried to tell people about Jesus, you might totally have mustered up some strength and you open up your mouth and you kind of say something about Jesus or God or something like that. And then, then there's that moment, there's that second. You know what I'm talking about. And there's the flinch on their face, there's the anger, or there's the, well, not everyone believes that way, or, well, that's just your interpretation of it. You know, there's the conflict right there. And if we're gonna tell people about Jesus, we gotta be prepared in the power of God to press through that little moment of awkwardness, okay? And I'm telling you, as someone who fears that moment, I don't like awkwardness. I'm pretty, you know, awkwardness is not, I'm at awkwardness. There's nothing but awkwardness with me, okay? You gotta get through that. And then when you begin to speak and converse about Jesus, you see the Holy Spirit show up and move in a mighty way. So what we're gonna be praying for today is Lord, help us to press through that pain barrier where there's a conflict in the conversation or there's just full on, I mean, people start shooting you in some places. People spear you in some places. People imprison you in pl- some places. And we gotta be able to press through that as we have boldness. And then in verse 30 and 31, closing out here. Lord, stretch out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. This is amazing. They just were in prison. They come back. Immediately they go to prayer. They pray theology. They pray scripture. They pray for boldness. And then the place starts shaking. All right? This doesn't happen again that I know of in the book of Acts that something like this happens. Chrysostom says, this made them more unshaken. The Lord shook the room and they became more firm. And they were all filled up with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so you can set your things aside right now and we're gonna close in prayer and with a song. And multiple times in this passage, we've seen boldness on Christians. They were brave and courageous, even though they were untrained, uneducated idiotas, right? No grammar, but they've been with Jesus. You know that God's, got a plan for you to be a part of his great mission. He wants you to tell people about his saving ways. He wants people to know Jesus and to enjoy him forever, just like you do. And I know how it is, how scary it can be, the thought of approaching that friend or that cousin or that neighbor or that coworker, and how would I ever do it? How would I ever open my mouth? Boldness, boldness. And so today as we close, if you're here and you know you just desire more boldness to cut to the chase, to cross the pain barrier, to speak the word of God and tell people of Jesus, I'm just gonna ask you to stand right now and I'm gonna pray over you. I'm just gonna pray that God would give you courage. Maybe today you come and you're like, I'm not even a Christian, but boldness sounds good. Well, today, become a Christian right now where you're at. Just say, Jesus, I'm yours. Forgive me of my sin. Set me free to serve you and to love you and make me bold. So Lord, as my friends stand Some of them maybe don't know what they're getting themselves into by standing up, Lord, but as they stand, they're asking for this courage. I'm standing right now asking for courage. 
Fill us with the spirit afresh today. Maybe the church won't shake, Lord, but Lord, give us stability. Some of us were like, we're like the little chihuahua dogs that like all I wanted to do was pet the little thing, but he's just shaking so bad. Like what is he even scared of? And Lord, would you just bring like calm stillness and resolve as we know what you've saved us towards. Each person that's standing, Lord, I pray that today they would just have a great, just steeled heart to not be afraid of their faces as Joshua and Jeremiah are told. Don't be afraid of their faces. Don't be afraid of that pain factor. Press through in obedience to me and see what I'll do. Lord, forgive us of pride. We care more about people, what what they think about us and we care about you or we care about their eternity in heaven or hell, Lord. We care more about our popularity or our prestige or keeping our job even. Lord, help us to care more about you, Lord. Grant to your servants that with all boldness we can speak the word as we close out today. And let's just receive that boldness by faith as we close in song. Go ahead, Johnny. Johnny.